Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. It's a pleasure to welcome you to today's Beeson Podcast. Dr. Robert Smith Jr. and I are here in the studio to introduce you to a vibrant sermon from today's pulpit. And we're going to hear one of our recent Beeson Divinity School graduates, Jonathan Hafes. He won the James Earl Massey Student Preaching Award in December of 2012. And for the last two years, he's been the lead pastor at Shades Valley Community Church right here in Birmingham. This is a tremendous sermon, Dr. Smith. Tell us about what Jonathan's going to do for us. Jonathan is the kind of student that we want to train and send out to be effective, and he does this here. His recurring proposition, um, his alliteration, his taking one chapter and preaching through it in a systematic way while applying application is a thing of beauty. The question that he asked his second-born son, who am I, is really the, um, the, the, uh, the question that claims our attention throughout the uh, entire sermon in that he is saying that John has been from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through trying to help us to see who Jesus is. And so he walks through that, and he takes the characters, like Peter and John running through to the um, – the, the the empty tomb, like Mary Magdalene, the gardener, like Thomas, all of those, all of those characters are put alongside each of us so that we can see their struggle to see who Jesus really is. His use of alliteration is absolutely fabulous. He says that Jesus told Mary Magdalene, don't uh, cling to me, and confessed that we are those who love the cling to Jesus in our studying of Scripture, but we are not um, ready to carry out the commission. It's not clinging time, he says right now. It's commissioning time. And one day there will be clinging time where we will fall at the feet of Jesus. I thought that was powerful uh, to bring up the resurrection, the crucifixion, and the close by reminding us that the empty cross needs an empty tomb and uh, Friday needs Sunday, John 19 needs John 20, and death needs resurrection. Isn't that great? You know, this comes at the end of a semester-long study of the Gospel of John in our chapel series. That's right. It's sort of the capstone of the whole series, yes, really. Sir. And Jonathan takes us right to the heart of the Gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection, and his living presence with us now in the Holy Spirit. Let's listen to a wonderful sermon by a recent Beeson graduate, Jonathan Hayes. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. It, it really is an honor uh, to be among friends today. So much in my life has happened really over the last three and a half years during my time at Beeson. And it's been an honor to share it with many of you. Probably the most significant thing that's happened in my life during my time here uh, was the birth of my son, my second born but firstborn son. It happened right at the beginning of third semester. That was uh, August of 2009. And I'll never forget standing there in the hospital uh, holding my son. I'll never forget what I said to him on that day. I I said, do you know who I am? 
I'm your papa. I'm your papa. I, truly, there, there's no greater revelation I could give to him of who I am in his life and of the relationship that we share with each other. I mean, he's a newborn. He can't understand any of it. He will spend the rest of his life coming to see what it means for me to be his papa. Already in, in the two short years that he's been alive, he's beginning to see, he's beginning to understand that relationship. He, he sees it through, through my actions. And through my words, and through my actions, I, I, I hug him, I hold him, I, I discipline him when he needs it, which is often. He sees it through my actions. He, he sees it through my words. I make a lot of I am statements. I am your father. I'm your friend. I, I'm an authority in your life. And through my words and my actions, he's beginning to understand that truth I spoke to him that first day, that I'm his papa. This is what the Apostle John has been doing with us as we have walked through his gospel this semester. From the very first verse of his gospel, John speaks an ultimate truth, an ultimate reality about Jesus Christ that is true in each and every one of our lives. Just like I took my son and I spoke to him the ultimate truth that I am his father. John, in the very first verse of his gospel, speaks to us. He holds up Christ and he says, In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is God. From the very first verse, John lifts high Jesus Christ and says to us, Behold your God. I mean... There's no greater truth, no greater revelation, no larger ultimate reality that John could reveal to us about who Jesus is in each and every one of our lives. But yet, from verse 1, John doesn't expect us to understand the depths of this truth. He takes us by the hand like children. And he leads us through the rest of his gospel. Helping us to see what it means. For Jesus to be God in the flesh. He shows us through Christ's actions and through his words. Through his actions, we we see Jesus turn water into wine. He heals a nobleman's son. He heals a paralytic. He feeds 5,000. He calms the sea. He gives a blind man sight. And he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. Through his actions, we are seeing what it means for Jesus to be God, that he's sovereign over nature, he's sovereign over disease, he's sovereign over death itself. We see it through his actions, we also see it through his words. Christ makes a lot of I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I am the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth and the life, I am the true vine. Through his actions and through his words, the gospel of John continuously holds up Christ and says, behold your God. This is the invitation of the gospel of John to see who Jesus is. Do you see? Do you see Jesus for who he is? 
And then after John has taken us through the so many of the words of Christ, the actions of Christ. Then the, the gospel begins to come to a climax in John 18 and 19. And John lifts up Christ in an ultimate way, in a final way, lifts up Christ. And it really, it's, it's in the strangest way. He lifts up Christ on a cross. I mean, Jesus is going to sacrifice himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin the world, your sin, my sin, put on Jesus Christ. He is willingly going to die, willingly going to lay down his left, his death. T- take the death that we deserve upon himself in our place. Jesus has prepared us for this. He's told us this over and over again throughout the gospel that he would be lifted up in this way. He's told us that he is going to willingly lay down his life. In John chapter 10 and verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He does this for us. And he does it willingly. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. But there's a problem here. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. From me, But that's exactly what it looks like is happening. I mean, he's betrayed, he's arrested, he's tried, he's beaten, and then he is lifted up on a cross and he speaks the words, it is finished, it's, it's just over. I, I mean, how this does not look like someone who is willingly laying down their life on their own accord and then pronouncing victory. This looks like someone whose life is being forcefully taken from them in hopeless defeat. It looks like all the words of Christ, all the actions of Christ are being proven false, like they are being undercut by the cross. How is this the ultimate lifting up of Christ for us to see Him as God? And then as as the bloody, lifeless body of Jesus is taken down, the empty cross seemingly stands as a symbol of hopelessness, of foolishness. And it would be. It would, the, the empty cross would be a picture of hopelessness. It would be a picture of foolishness were it not for the empty tomb. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, if we've got an empty cross but we have a full tomb, we've got a problem. If Christ has not been raised, if the tomb is not empty, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised, let's pack it up and go home. The empty cross needs an empty tomb. John chapter 19, it needs a chapter 20. Friday needs a Sunday. Death needs a resurrection. It is finished. That, that sentence has been spoken, but it needs an exclamation point for us to understand it rightly. We can only see the glory of those words. We can only see the glory of the cross from the doorway of the empty tomb. So let's take a journey, you and I, through John 
chapter 20, so that we may see. John 20, let's start together. Verse 1, Scripture says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. After Jesus' crucifixion, he was buried in an unused, borrowed tomb in the midst of a garden. It most likely was a cave-type structure. It would have had a stone rolled over the entrance, most likely to prevent grave robbers common in that day. And yet when Mary arrives, the first thing that she sees is that the stone has been rolled away, but she doesn't see the reality of the situation. She makes an assumption. We see it in the next verse, verse 2. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. And she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary assumes one of two things. She assumes that either Jesus' body has been stolen by grave robbers, quite possible, or that the authorities have moved it. Uh, regardless of which of those options we choose, uh, the one thing she knows is that the body of Jesus has been moved. And the one thing she doesn't assume is that he has moved himself. Well, Peter and John, they obviously want to check out the news for themselves, so they take off in a foot race. John's the younger of the two disciples, probably a little bit more in shape. And so he beats Peter, makes it to the tomb first. But that's not John's point. John's point in describing the race to us is not to try and point out who gets there first and who gets there second. The emphasis is not on the winner. The emphasis is on what the disciples see. It's necessary. John wants them to arrive there at different times so that we can look with them one at a time. John gets there first. He doesn't go in. He just looks into the tomb. And he sees the linen that had wrapped Jesus' body, it's, it's lying there. Peter gets there second, true to his character. He just busts on into the tomb. He also sees the linen cloth lying there. And he sees the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. John describes the seeing of these linen cloths to us Twice. Why? What's so important about these cloths? It could be that John wants us to see that this doesn't look like a grave robbery scene. What grave robber unwraps a body and then leaves behind valuable linen? And that's probably true. But I think John's trying to tell us more. There's one other place in his gospel that John has already talked to us about grave clothes. In John chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And we read these words in John eleven forty four: The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. John wants us to see there is a difference between the resurrection of Lazarus that he's already told us about, there's a difference between that and what is taking place in the tomb of Jesus. 
Lazarus came out still wearing his grave clothes. It's like Dr. Smith told us a couple of weeks ago when he preached that text. Lazarus comes out with his grave clothes. It's, it's, it's like death still has a hold on Lazarus. He brings out his grave clothes because he's going to need them again. But when Christ sat up on Resurrection Sunday, death lost its hold, including the clothes. It's like he took the face cloth, folded it up, shoved it in a drawer because he wouldn't need it anymore. The the tomb was borrowed and so was the wardrobe. Do you see? Do you see? John sees. Verse 8, the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first, he also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John believes that Jesus has risen from the dead, even though he doesn't understand everything yet. A fuller understanding will come later as they re-study, as they re-look through the lens of scripture. But right now he sees and he believes. Do you see? Do you see? The story continues. As the disciples leave to head back home, Mary had apparently followed them back to the tomb. She remains there alone, weeping, because she doesn't see. She eventually looks over into the tomb, and in there she sees two angels. Undoubtedly, she uh, just thinks that they're mere men. And they speak to her. They ask her an important question. They say, woman, why are you weeping? And she explains, the body of Jesus is missing. And uh, apparently about that time, something behind her gets her attention because she turns and there stands Jesus, but she doesn't see that it's him. And why should she? Uh, She's not looking for a standing, breathing Jesus. She's looking for him, but she's not seeing him. It's almost like she's blind. Jesus speaks to her. He asks her an important question. Woman, why are you weeping? Same question the angels just asked. Two times John points out the linen cloth to us. Two times he wants us to hear this question. Why? I think John really wants us to see the absurdity of tears of grief beside the empty tomb. Woman, why are you weeping? This is not a place of grief. You don't see, Mary. You don't see. And so Jesus tries to help her. He says, whom are you seeking? Verse 15 says, supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Supposing him to be the gardener. Do you know what Mary's problem is here? She's too good of an exegete. She knows her context. I'm in a garden. That contains graves. I got two options. I can run into a corpse. Or if I run into someone who's breathing. 
can be a gardener. This guy's not dead, so he must be a gardener. But Jesus is about to do what he does best. He's about to take that context and flip it on its head. He is an expert context flipper. We are are talking about a man who looks at a hungry crowd of 5,000 and he turns it into a feast. We're talking about a man who looks at a sea that a normal person would sink in and he treats it like it's a sidewalk. We're talking about a man who shows up at a funeral and before he leaves, it's the best party that anyone has ever been to in their life. He is an expert context flipper. Mary thinks that she is beside a grave for weeping. And with one word, she will see that she is beside a God for worshiping. Mary asks him, sir, if you've carried him away. Tell me where you have laid him. Jesus is going to answer her question because technically, technically he is responsible for moving the body. And he's going to tell her not where the body's now laying, but where it's now standing. And he's going to do it all with one word. Maria. Mary. Her name. He just simply speaks her name. And when Christ calls her name, she turns and she sees. That is the only testimony anyone has. When Christ calls your name, you turn and you see. Mary sees and she cries out, Rabboni, my own teacher. He calls her name and she sees. John 10 and verse 3, Jesus said, The sheep hear the voice of their shepherd and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out my sheep hear my voice i know them and they follow me jesus the good shepherd he calls the name of his sheep mary and she hears his voice she knows his voice and she sees she sees that all of his words all of his actions up to this point they weren't undercut by the cross all of his words and actions they are true From the doorway of the empty tomb, she can now see the cross. It was not a defeat. He really did lay down his life as the good shepherd on behalf of the sheep. No one took it from him. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. How do we know that, Jesus? How do we know that you do this of your own accord? He says, because I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. Mary sees the the empty cross. It finally makes sense in light of the empty tomb. The cross was not foolishness. It was the very wisdom of God. It is finished. That sentence has its exclamation point and it can be heard as a cry of victory. Everything Jesus ever did, everything he ever said, it's proven true in the resurrection. The resurrection vindicates Christ. It vindicates him. But not only that, In the resurrection, we not only see that everything Christ said and everything he did, everything he said about himself, not only do we see that that's true, but we also see that everything he ever said about us is true. The resurrection, it's not just for Jesus' vindication. Romans 4.25 says that the resurrection is for our justification. 
from the doorway of the empty tomb, we can see he really was the final sacrifice for sins. Sins really are gone. He really has defeated death. He left death itself in the grave, folded it up, and stuffed it in a drawer. It doesn't have any power anymore. He defeated death itself. Mary sees this. Do you see? In the face of the resurrected Christ, we see he is who he claimed to be. In the resurrection, we see that Jesus is God. Behold your God. Do you see? Do you see? Each of us, like Mary, we're blind to the reality of the resurrection. We are lost in the midst of a world that's supposed to be a place of life. It was supposed to be a place of life. Like a garden. Started out that way. But it is a place of death like a graveyard. But Jesus enters into every one of our lives if he so chooses. And he flips that context on its head simply by calling our name. Like he called Lazarus by name out of the tomb. Like he called Mary's name in the garden. He calls us from death. He calls us from blindness to see life in him. Has he called your name? Do you see? For if you do, your context flips. It changes everything. Everything changed for Mary. She went from weeping by a grave to worshiping God. Her mourning has turned into joy. And she latches on to Christ. She she clings to him. And doesn't that seem like an appropriate response? I mean, if Christ has called your name, wasn't that your response? You saw him as God. You saw the glory of the cross. And you latched on to him. You, you wanted to grab onto to, to love Him, to cling to Him. Truly, in the resurrection, we see that Christ is the God to whom we cling. He's the God to whom we cling. Like Mary. It seems like an appropriate response, but that's what makes Jesus' reply to her so interesting. In verse 17, look at it with me. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, Mary. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Jesus says, don't cling. Literally, stop clinging. It's like she's continuously latching on to him and he commands her, don't do that. Now is not the time, now is not the place for clinging. Mary, I have not yet ascended to the Father. I will. And one day you will be with me before the Father and there will be an eternity of clinging to be done. But now is not the time for clinging. Now is the time for commissioning. Look at it with me. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go. It's a commission. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary, don't cling because I have a commission. You're going to go. You're going to bear witness. You're going to bear witness about what I've done through my death and through my resurrection, that it has flipped the context. It has changed people's very relationship with God. Go, go tell my disciples, it really is finished. I really was the sacrifice for their sins. Go and tell them this has changed everything. My Father is their Father. My God is their God. Mary, don't cling. I have a commission. You see, in the resurrection, we see Christ is the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned. 
the resurrection, we see that Christ is the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned. That truth, that's a problem for many of us. I think specifically it's a really big problem for seminarians because we are great clingers. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried. I believe that truth. I cling to that truth. I dissect that truth. I study that truth. I eat, sleep, live, and breathe that truth. I cling to it. And Jesus says, now's not a time for clinging. Now is a time for commissioning. Fellow students, are we great clingers to the neglect of our commission? Professors, do we, do we cling to Christ in the midst of our classrooms and conferences and lecture halls and neglect the commission? All of us as members of the church of Jesus Christ, as we gather with local bodies on Sundays, do we come in and cling to Christ and walk out the door and forget that we are a commissioned people? The, the greatest indictment I could offer against myself For three and a half years, I have been at this seminary learning everything I can about this gospel, clinging with every ounce of strength in my fingers. I don't know the names of my neighbors. I don't say that with any ounce of pride, but with every ounce of shame. And I wonder how true it would be for many of us who hold so tightly to a gospel that we've been commissioned with. I don't have a lot longer left where I live, but I do have a conviction about a commission. I pray that the same would be true for you. We have got to see that our commission is tied to the resurrection. If we believe the resurrection, it will show up in our obedience to the commission. For in the resurrection, we see Christ is not only the God to whom we cling, but also by whom we are commissioned. We see that truth repeated again and again throughout the rest of the chapter. Very quickly, we see it repeated with the disciples in verses 19 to 23. Mary Magdalene comes to them testifying. She says, I have seen him. I've seen the Lord. Yet the disciples, they still cower in fear behind locked doors until Jesus himself shows up in their midst, says, peace be with you. He's flipping their context from fear to faith. He says, peace be with you, but he doesn't just let them sit in that peace. Right on the heels of his peace be with you, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He commissions them. Because in the resurrection, we see Christ as the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned. We see that truth again with Thomas in verses 24 to 29. Thomas was absent when Jesus appeared to the disciples for the first time. And when they testify to him, we've seen him, Thomas. We've seen the Lord. He says, unless I see. Unless I see, I won't believe. Thomas wants some nail scars and a spear-pierced side. And so eight days later, Jesus shows up with Thomas present. And he says to Thomas, put your finger here in my hands. And, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas, l- let me flip your context for you. I've turned Mary's mourning into joy. I've turned the disciples' fear into faith. Let me turn your disbelieving into believing. 
And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. Thomas cries out in clinging worship fashion. But Jesus doesn't let him stay there. Look at where he directs Thomas's attention in verse 29. He says, Thomas, have you believed me because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Thomas, you have seen and believed, but there are a lot more people out there who are not going to see me like you have seen. But they're still going to come to believe. How? How are they going to come to believe? Thomas, they're going to come to believe because as the Father has sent me, so also I am sending you. They won't see me with their physical eyes, but they are going to see me through your witness. Christ takes the attention of Thomas and he turns it. He turns the attention of all of his disciples towards commission. Towards those who will believe through their witness. We sit here because we have seen Christ based on the faithful witness of others. And brothers and sisters, we have likewise been commissioned. Those who have seen the Lord have been commissioned by the Lord to take the gospel until the whole world sees. Do you see? In the resurrection, we see Christ as the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned. In the resurrection, Mary saw Christ. The disciples saw Christ. Thomas saw Christ as Lord and God. Do you see? This is why John has written his entire gospel in hopes that we might see. John wrote because in the resurrection he saw and he believed. And he was commissioned. That's why he wrote. He was commissioned, take this gospel until others see. He tells us, this is why I wrote, so that you would see. Verses 30 and 31, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. I've written these. I've written these signs. I've testified about who Jesus is. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I've written so that you would see and believe. I've written from beginning to end, holding up Jesus, saying, Behold your God, do you see? In the resurrection, we see Christ as the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned. Do you see? I pray that you see and believe. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the testimony of John. I thank you for those who saw and believed I pray for any in here who have not seen that today they will have heard your voice calling their name. They would see you. For those who do see God, I pray for all of us. We would see ourselves as a commissioned people so that others might see. That we would spend our lives committed to this commission. Until the day when we are all with you. And we actually in reality, see your face and cling for forever. Until that day, may we be a commissioned people so that others might see and believe. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen one. Amen.
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.